0: I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me over to the book of Proverbs. And we're going to look at the very last chapter, the very last 22 verses in Proverbs, which is uh, Proverbs chapter 31. I'd like to wish all of you ladies who are wives and mothers this morning a very happy day. Uh, especially for mothers, a very nice Mother's Day. When I was asked to speak on this particular day, I was glad to be able to do that, and this is a text that uh, came to my mind immediately, and I'm glad to be able to share a few thoughts with you on this. By way of introduction, I would like to read just four or five verses here. We're going to cover... Uh, verses 10 through 31, but I'll read just a few verses to begin with. Beginning in verse 10, who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her so he will have no lack of gain. And then down in verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, Lord, we know that we are on hallowed ground, and we ask that you will bless these words. And Father, I do pray that the words of my own mouth and that the meditation of all of our hearts together might be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. So bless the truth as it is always given in your word. And we do indeed give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage uh, here this morning is on the virtuous woman in her role as a mother and a wife. Interestingly, the Bible has a very high view of women. You would never find that in the pagan cultures of that particular day of the ancient world. In the ancient world, women were looked at primarily as kind of second-class citizens. Among the elites, and I mean the political leaders, the kings, uh, the princes of the world, uh, beauty and charm was the primary thing. If you've ever read the book of Esther, you will notice that in the king's wife Vashti, a very beautiful woman, but he did not highly regard her as he should have, and Under a a drunken situation, he tried to force her to come before uh, the other princes of his kingdom to show off her beauty, and she refused to do that. And as a result, she was banished from the kingdom. But that was kind of the attitude that many of them had in that day. Among the regular folks, a woman was worthy, uh, her worth was measured by the children she could bear and the labor that she could bring to the home. So when you talk about women's rights in that day, that would have been completely unheard of, totally non-existent. But in ancient Israel, interestingly, it was entirely different because Israel had the scriptures, and they gave honor and they gave dignity to womanhood and to motherhood. And uh, it was very important for them to listen to the teaching of their mothers. Now, that wasn't the situation in every single home without exception. But that was the emphasis that was there as a result of the law of God that had been given. We read in the fifth commandment where it says, Honor your father and your mother. And then in Leviticus 19 and in the third verse, We read, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. And it's interesting there in that particular verse that the mother comes first in that reading. And then over in Proverbs chapter 1 and in the 8th verse, uh, Solomon is speaking. He says, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. And then over in Proverbs chapter 6 and in the 20th verse, we read, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart and tie them around your neck. And then when we come to Proverbs 31 and in the first verse, we come to kind of a crescendo in this, where he says, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him, what my son and what, son of my womb and what, son of my vows. And so by way of introduction to this particular chapter, we find that it is the utterance of his own mother. And then, when you come to the New Testament, we see uh, further elevation of the mother and the wife. We found find that uh, in the Gospel that those women that followed close to the Lord Jesus Christ were very brave followers of Him. They stood by Him at the cross. They prepared His burial, and they were fir- the first to see the resurrection. And when we come over to Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, we find the 11, that they are congregated in the upper room. And in the 14th verse of chapter 1, it says that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then when we come to uh, the epistle of the Ephesians, Paul exhorts the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then in Galatians chapter 3, and in the 28th verse, we read that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, having said that, there's no doubt that we can mark the differences with respect to the role and relationship of women and men in the church. But nevertheless, the word of God expresses a very high position and proper recognition of, of uh, women, motherhood, and wives. Now, the text here in Proverbs chapter 31 was written in a form of a poem with eight stanzas. It really is not quite a proverb. It seems to be closer to a psalm. But interestingly, it is one that was written and it was recited, not written, but it was recited by Jewish husbands and their children at the Sabbath meal every single Friday night. Now, how would you like to incorporate that into our modern-day traditions? I think the wives would really appreciate that. But the text consists of 22 verses from verse 10 through verse 31, which corresponds to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I believe that it was uh, written in this way to help those who uh, were studying this particular portion of the Word of God and incorporating it into their lives, it helped them in memorization of it, especially for those brides-to-be. It forms the goal standard of motherhood and of womanhood. The passage also can be interpreted metaphorically. Uh, It gives to us a picture of the church as well. Uh, We will be reading in a few moments about the scarlet clothing that the mother provides for her family the white linen and the purple that she dresses herself in. And these are pictures, uh, metaphorical pictures, of the atoning blood of Christ and the sanctity and the purity of the Christian life and how the Lord looks upon his bride. He looks upon his bride with great affection and great love, how he shows her honor uh, and uh, and how how she shows him honor with the works of her hands, and how her children rise up and call her blessed. Uh, This is a picture of the church as she evangelizes in the world, and her children uh, highly esteem her and call her blessed. And in return, ultimately, he bestows upon her honor and praise, As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that he, that is Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Christ says, here am I and the children, that is the church, whom God has has given to me. So you see how he boasts in her, how he brags about her, and how he praises her. So it is a picture indeed of what God intends for his people. But that is really the secondary meaning. And I like to focus on the primary meaning. And that is the meaning that it does have uh, for women today. So after all, it is Mother's Day today and I would like to focus on that particular primary meaning. Now also, before we get to the exposition of the text, I might say this, that the text here and the picture that we have here is a very ideal picture. It's a very high standard, and certainly not all of us can achieve this standard. There's going to be disappointments along the way. After all, not all women have gotten off on the ground at the same starting point as others. Not all have had the same opportunity uh, to learn this from their mothers. Not all have had the same supporting husbands to help them along the way. But nevertheless, it is the gold standard that every woman should pray about and should seek to emulate in her life. And if it indeed is her heart's desire And I believe that in the long term, God will bless her and will eventually say to her, well done, my beloved daughter in the faith. Well, I have three major points I'd like to share with you this morning on this particular text. And the first one is that such a woman as this that is described here is very hard to find. In verse 10, He says, who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies. Now, there's been some disagreement among commentators as to who the author of this particular chapter is. In verse 1, it says it's the words of King Lemuel. But we do know that Solomon had other names besides the name of Solomon. Nathan the prophet named him Jedidiah at his birth. And there are those commentators who believe that Lemuel was just another name for Solomon. One of the problems here is that in this chapter and in this description of the virtuous wife that it is really not a picture of Solomon's personal experience because after all Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines and what we find in this particular chapter is the blessing of this marriage is the blessing of one woman with her husband there is no polygamy in this particular chapter now that might be possibly the reason why uh, the name Lemuel is mentioned here instead of Solomon we don't know for certain it is possible that King Lemuel may have been a king of a uh, smaller area of the nation or surrounding nation that Solomon had known and had brought this teaching in as the last chapter of Proverbs. I kind of doubt that, but uh, there is a mystery about this. But also, we read here that it is really not the words of a king, whether or not it's Solomon or Lemuel, but it is the words of his mother, The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. And if it indeed is Solomon, as I believe it was, then these are the words of his mother, Bathsheba. It's not important to solve that riddle, but it is something, I think, of of interest and curiosity. But it begins here in verse 10 by saying that a virtuous woman is hard to find. You're not going to find her in the bars. You're not going to find her in the casinos. She's not going to be surfing the internet looking for other men, but you will find her within the Christian church and serving the Lord. And I believe that it is fair that this problem of a man finding a virtuous woman uh, is not only a problem for men, it's a problem for women as well. Because back in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Who can find a faithful man? Who can find a good man? Who can find a trustworthy man? A virtuous man? So we see it can go both ways. But the first thing that is necessary to find such a good woman is to be a godly man, a godly Christian. And that means that he cannot be embracing the spirit of the age If he could find such a woman, she would not have him if that's the way he is. So the first advice to young men is that they need to seek the Lord and to love the Lord in order to find a virtuous woman. Uh, To seek cultivating a gentle and a quiet spirit that would permeate the home because that would be certainly her desire, the place that she would be most comfortable the place where she could be most creative and to make a family as happy as she possibly could. So the virtuous wife is hard to find. Her value is beyond rubies. She is very rare. She's like a diamond in a rough. And when she is found, she brings tremendous value into the man's life and into the home. The second thing I'd like to address are the various characteristics of this virtuous wife. And he dives into a little bit of detail for the next uh, 15 verses or so. And so I'm going to just go through these fairly quickly and make a few comments as we go along. The first thing that we find characteristic of this woman is that she is a trustworthy wife, a trustworthy wife. Verse 11, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. Do you know the trust is certainly one of the most important elements for any marriage to be successful? You remember the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, how Abraham sent his servant to find a, a good wife uh, for Isaac. They lived in the land of Canaan. There were no Jewish women, so he sends his servant back uh, to where he came from and to find somebody that he could bring to Isaac. And he found Rebekah. And in Genesis uh, chapter 24, it says that Isaac brought her, that is Rebekah, into his tent, and he loved her and she comforted him. Because he had been sad for a long time because of the loss of his own mother, Sarah. Sarah. So, it begins as a happy story. And then God gives to them two children. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. And God established a covenant with Isaac and said that it would be through the younger one that God would bring the blessing of his covenant to bear. And that the older one, Esau, would serve the younger one. But over a period of time... Uh, I don't know if Isaac forgot that promise. I wouldn't think he would, but we do know that he began to grow old. He became blind, and he may have grown a little bit of senile. And so one day he asked that Esau would go out and catch some venison, bring it in, and prepare the venison, and then Isaac would bless him before he would die. And this troubled his wife Rebecca very much. And instead of Rebekah going into Isaac and saying, Isaac, husband, dear, do you not recall the blessing and the promises that God had made, that the blessing was to be given to Jacob? But she did not do that. And she contrived a plan and had Jacob go in and become an imposter of his brother so that Isaac would give the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau and so Jacob in that sense robbed his brother the blessing and it turned out that the home became a shipwreck and you can only imagine how Isaac's level of confidence in his wife from that time forth may not have been the same as it had been before trust is absolutely central to everything and notice how he puts it here He not only trusts her, but he safely trusts her. That as a result of trust, safety comes in to the home. He has this deep sense of confidence in her. He can confide in her. He can go to her. He can find solace in her in times of trouble. And his comfort is his concern, and his burdens are hers to bear and to relieve. And then in verse 11, it says, so that he will have no lack of gain. And if there is this trust that forms the foundation of that marriage, there's nothing of important value that he will ever lack, for he will prosper all the days of his life. And then in verse 12, it continues and says, she does him good and not evil. Her aim is to make him every bit the man that he could be both professionally and spiritually. He keeps her husband on the straight and the narrow. She has his best interest in mind. She wants God's best in his life. And so she builds him up. She speaks well of him. She may constructively criticize him every now and then in order to put a check on him. You know, men have a tendency of maybe being a little bit impertinent at times, a little bit impulsive, going off, taking risks in investments, or various things like that. I know my daughter was sharing with me the other day and asked me to pray about that, that her husband was going to drive one way about seven hours to get to the Kentucky border in order to buy a motorcycle. And she's not really crazy about motorcycles, but Asked for prayer on behalf of him in that kind of a situation. But uh, I'm sure she talked with him about that. But this is the way wives address their husband. It may be through constructive criticism in order to provide that check. But notice the time span here. It's all the days of her life. This speaks of her faithfulness. She takes her vows seriously in both good times and in bad times. I know that there may be terrible situations that she faces in her life. She could be a wife that's been abandoned, a wife that has been abused, such as Abigail was uh, in the Old Testament, the woman who would eventually become David's wife. So there are certain exceptions to the rule. But this is the goal. This is the standard, that she seeks his good. She seeks his welfare and the noblest all of the days of her life during good times and bad times so she's trustworthy the second thing is is that she is a devoted homemaker verse 13 she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands she's not only a spiritual lady but she's a boots on the ground lady she works with her hands now there's some other translations and I believe that these are correct where it says that she works with her hands in delight she works in this way with no complaints she's not begrudging she finds joy in her labor and then in verse 14 it continues and says she is like the merchant ships she brings her food from afar now, the merchant ships in that day by any standard were quite huge. And they brought raw materials in, supplies and food. And it says here that she brings her food from afar. She would travel by foot. She would walk great distances along with her maidservants in order to bring food back to the home to be prepared. She made sure that the cupboards were never bare. And that the refrigerator was never empty. And then in verse 15, it says that she arises at night and provides food for her household. Now in the Middle Eastern homes of that day, the lamp was always shining. It was her duty to be up at midnight to keep it lit. And then she would arise early in the morning to ensure that it was, there was still light that was provided by the lamp. And it was during that period of time that she would begin to grind the corn and prepare for that day's food. And then in verse 15b, it continues and says, and she provides a portion for her maidservants. And that's interesting. She does certainly provide a portion of that food for her servants, but it means more than that. In the original, the word portion Literally means work or labor. Uh, and the way it should read is that she distributes a portion of the workload to her maidservants. After all, this was a king's mother. This was a very large estate that had servants men servants, women servants. And so what the text means is that she was a good planner. She made her plans for the day and she distributes the workload, among several of her maid servants, And then in verse 16, it continues and says that she considers a field and buys it. So we see here that there is a business skill that comes into play. She's endowed with financial wisdom, and there's a field for sale, and she considers the purchase. And as that reads, she's not an impulsive buyer. She doesn't make rash decisions, but she considers it. She uh, assesses it. She tries to decide whether or not this would be good land or not in order to uh, invest in, in order to grow crops. And once she's convinced of the good investment, it says that she goes ahead and she buys it. So we notice here the independence that she has by her husband because he trusts her. He trusts her that she can go out and she can make an investment like this. Now, the question is, where does she get the money to invest in such a piece of property like that? And the answer to that is down in verse 24. She makes linen garments and she sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Now, these sashes, were like belts that went around the robes of these sailors and these merchants so that when they went to work, they didn't have these robes flopping around. They were just simply like belts that were made of fabric. And so they, uh, she, along with her uh, maidservants, made these sashes so that they could go to work on their ships and that they would sell these uh, different kinds of Uh, of things along the coastline of Palestine, all along the Mediterranean shore. And then coming back to the second half of verse 16, it says that from her prophets, from these prophets, she plants a vineyard. And in that vineyard, it's a grape vineyard, and from the grapes they could make wine and medicine or provide what was necessary for sacrifice. So from the garment business... She earns some money, she saves it, she reinvests it in the land, she buys a field, plants a vineyard, sells the results, and everybody benefits from it. And then in verse 17, we read that she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. Now that doesn't mean she goes to the gym every day and and works out at the gym in order to build muscle. But she does have a strong constitution from the hard work that she does. We see in a few verses that she works on the staff. and the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the spindle and the distaff, And that required a certain amount of strength to be able to do that. She carries the food from afar. She works in the field. She works with her hands. She makes linen garments and covering. So she gains strength from that. And then in verse 18, it says, she perceives that her merchandise is good. There's nothing shabby about this merchandise. It is good quality. It sells well. And then it continues that her lamp does not go out by night. She must work late in the evening under the dim oil lamp. She will do that. And she does that out of love for her husband and her children. And then, verse 19, it says, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and holds her hands to the spindle. Now, the spindle and the distaff is what she used in order to weave cloth from the wool and the flax that she has purchased. She spins the flax and the wool into a thread, she weaves it on a loom. And once it is woven into a fabric. Then she's able to cut it. And then she's able to sew garments from it. And it's made of wool so that they have clothing in the winter time. And also she does this with flax and linen so they have cooler clothing in the summertime. And in verse 20, it continues and says she extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. So she not only cares for her own, but she cares for those who are in need, who are less fortunate. And she takes the initiative in order to reach out beyond her home. She doesn't wait for the poor to come to them, but she goes to the poor and she extends her hand to them and helps them as she is able to. And then in verse 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household is clothed with scarlet. Question is, does it really snow in the Holy Land? And the answer to that is yes. I was looking uh, on the internet the other day with regard to that, and they get about 20 inches average of snow. Uh, Most of it is in the highlands. But she has no fear. She has no panic when it snows. You know, if you... Grew up in the South, you know anything about the Southern states like the Carolinas or Georgia, whenever it snows the first day, people go into a panic. They don't know how to drive their automobiles in even a little bit of snow. And so usually, and oftentimes businesses shut down whenever they see snow. There's this fear and this panic, but she has no fear or panic because she has clothed her loved one's in scarlet wool. This is red dyed wool. And you ask, why is she covering them in scarlet wool? And it appears because she does so because it retains the heat. It absorbs the heat. It keeps it in. And you might ask the question, well, couldn't she do that in black color? And the answer to that is yes, she could. But it appears that she likes the bright clothing. It has a happier feeling about it. And so she clothes her family with scarlet wool. And then down in verse 22, it says that she makes tapestry for herself. So we see that she's a seamstress and she beautifully embroiders bedspreads and cushions for her home. Now she may not be able to afford all the raw materials for these things, but what she does, what she can do with what she has is that she produces a quality product on the inside of her home. Her house is a place that may be a humble home, but it is, it's a place that's marked by beauty and design. And then it goes on and says that her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now, the fine linen is the imported white linen from Egypt. The purple is the dyed textile from Timnah, Timnah being in the southern part of Israel. And so we see here that she dresses herself and she dresses her home in beautiful things. And all of this becomes a good reflection upon her husband. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now the gates of the city is the place where the elders and the leaders would assemble, the ones that would make judicial and legislative uh, acts of law or that they would act as judges and leaders of the city. These were men of good reputation, men of accomplishment. One of my favorite films that I've watched that comes from the long-term past is called Fiddler on the Roof. It's about a Jewish family from Russia back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Jews were persecuted there, as they have been in so many places in the world. But it's a story of a milkman and his family. Milkman was a very poor man, And uh, in this musical, uh, very humorous part of this particular film, he begins to sing His name is Tevi, I believe And he sings this song, "If I were a Rich Man." And he goes on and says, if I were a rich man, dobby, 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 do, and so forth. And he said that all day long, I would bitty, bitty bum if I were a wealthy man. And so in the first verse, he says that he would not have to work hard. And then also, secondly, if he were a rich man, he could build a beautiful home with a staircase that goes up one side of the house and then comes down on the other. And then he would be able to purchase for his wife the most beautiful clothing so she could uh walk around like a peacock in his words but also he said interestingly that if he were a rich man then he could sit at the gates and at the gates he could be like solomon and people all over the country could come and ask his wisdom on particular matters well this is where these men sat that had great responsibilities they sat At the gates of the city. And they were not necessarily rich men, but they were men who were well respected in their influence and in their sphere of the community, men with a good name. So we see here this second point that she was a homemaker. She was trustworthy, she was a homemaker, but also she was a woman of influence. In verse 25, It says, strength and honor are her clothing. So we have the word strength coming back into the picture here. And really what that means is, is that she is strong in character. There's something that separates this lady apart from others. There's a dignity about her. There's a quiet. There's a calm about her. Something that's very honorable that you don't always see in the world. She's a person of character, a person of great credibility, and people trust her. And when she talks, it says in verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom. She's a wise lady. She mentors her children. She's a counselor to her husband. She's a very wise person, and others confide in her to seek her wisdom And then again in verse 26, that in her tongue is the law of kindness. Now, that word kindness can also be translated as loving kindness or as mercy. She doesn't yell all day at her kids. She doesn't put down her husband. She does not engage in a lot of gossip. She speaks kind words, gracious words, because she's fundamentally kind. She's learned something about the mercy of God. And she can show mercy to others as a result of that. And then in verse 27, she watches over the way of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Now, the bread of idleness uh, can carry with it the meaning of laziness, but there's more to it than that. The bread of idleness speaks of trivial pursuits. Selfishness, pursuits that would be non value for her family, pursuits that would not bring value to her children, pursuits that would bring compromise to the care of her home. Her primary desire is to care for her household. Nothing, absolutely nothing, comes before that. And so she gives of herself without reservation to serve her family and to serve her God. And the greatest fulfillment, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest joy that she finds in her life is her family's happiness and that she cares for them. So we see in these uh, two points that uh, the virtuous woman is a hard one to find. She has many good, solid characteristics But then the third thing is her reward, verses 28 to 31. Beginning in 28, it says that her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. And then the husband tells her this, many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. In other words, what he is saying is, is he's saying that I have met a lot of women in my life, many that have been gifted, talented, but you know, I would not trade you for any of them. And as the children grow older, they want to be just like mom. They want to raise their children like mom did, with tender guidance and wise counsel and by unselfishly giving of herself for them. And then he goes on and says, verse 30, charm is deceitful, And beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. The old King James Version, I like it as well, says, Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. It's interesting how the Bible and how this particular woman who gave this to her son puts charm and beauty in its proper place. Nothing wrong with charm and beauty. However, it needs to be put into its proper place. Bathsheba, who was a very beautiful woman, does that. And she doesn't put it very high up on the list of attributes because she knows that these qualities, these aspects, in due time will tend to diminish. But what is important is that she fears the Lord. What do we mean by that? She reverences God. She loves his law. She teaches her children to love God. And she points them to Christ. She sets the example. She prays for her family, for her children. And she carries out all of her duties. And the overarching summary of her life is the fear of the Lord. It's interesting how the book of Proverbs begins with that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and how fools despise wisdom and instruction. Everything begins with the fear of the Lord, if you want wisdom, and it ends with exactly the same thing. She who fears the Lord will receive praise. Verse 31, give her the fruits of her hands and let her own words praise her in the gates. She'll be the first one to admit she is not perfect. Many sorrows she carries with her, many disappointments perhaps. Some things along the way seem to be mundane. She wonders, is this really worth it all in the final analysis? But all along, she is bearing fruit for her family. Fruit that all the good she's done to others will prosper her family, her husband, her children her servants the poor and it's a command it says give her of the fruit of her hands give her praise recognize that she deserves this is that not what mothers day really is all about interestingly that the key verse or the key word in these last verses is the word praise and it's mentioned three times notice once again verse 28 Her husband also, and he praises her. In verse 30, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. In verse 31, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Husbands, if you have a wife like this, and I trust you do, consider yourself a blessed man and praise her often. You know, the problem that we as husbands have is that we do not praise our wives enough. We do not come alongside them enough, and we fail often to offer thanks for the great things that they've done for us. It is important to encourage her, to thank her, and to praise her often because she has earned it. Let's do that. Finally, in conclusion, The text here reflects what the Christian life should be like for all of us, but especially for the virtuous wife and mother. Her life is a high calling. It is a difficult calling. There's nothing easy about being the woman in the home. But this text here was never given to discourage anyone, but to encourage them to work towards that ideal. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Brethren, uh, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He says, I do not count myself to have arrived at the end, to have achieved the standards that's laid down in God's law, or to come anywhere near it. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I trust that that is your goal as you walk with the Lord. May the Lord help us to do that, and may he help all wives and all mothers to fulfill that wonderful God-given role that they have been so blessed with so that when they come into the kingdom in time, that he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Well, let's pray and we'll be done. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word as it is so wise and how it truly instructs us. Father, we thank you for the wives and the mothers that are represented here today. We're grateful, our Heavenly Father, for their loving care for the family, and for the church as well, for the poor in their various areas and spheres of responsibility. We thank you, our Father, how they demonstrate the love of God in Jesus Christ, how they give themselves, how kind they are. And Father, we know that we do not thank them enough, we do not bless them enough, but Lord, we indeed are grateful, and we know that they do not go unobserved from your eyes. Lord, we know that your praise and your blessing is upon them. And so we continue to pray for them, that you will encourage them, that you will go with them, that you will bless them in the days to come. And Father, most of all, words cannot express our thankfulness Words cannot express for what you have accomplished through the giving of your dear son. And we praise you for his coming into this world, for suffering, for dying for us, for rising from the dead, for ascending into heaven, for sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Thank you for the spirit of God who leads us and guides us into all truth. We're grateful that even in times of trial, even in times of struggle. You are ever with us, leading us and guiding us in the way that you would have us to go. So we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its meaning to us. And Lord, we thank you for the future that is so bright for us. Help us to be faithful followers of Jesus. And we give you our thanks in his name. Amen.